You are listening to the Post Growth Australia podcast, the one podcast where size don't matter and where better is better than bigger. Hello, all and sundry, and welcome to another edition of Post Growth Australia podcast. Michael Bayless is my name. Stopping the endless concreting over our precious planet is my game. This episode is about a report linking the impact that population growth has on climate change and conversely, the impact that climate change has on the prospect of another 2 billion humans on the planet by the end of the century, at least. As it transpires, there has been eerie serendipity with the launch of the report in mid-February with a succession of extreme weather events both within Australia and abroad. The recent succession of floods in the Lismore region of Australia has left 4,000 homes uninhabitable. Up to this point, the Northern Rivers was the next regional boom centre in Australia, with house and rent prices soaring up the vertical curve, with major housing development and habitat-destroying road and infrastructure projects planned. You know, the usual. So suddenly finding ourselves several thousand houses behind puts a dampener on resale value to an area that has suffered multiple climate change-induced catastrophes during the past four years. It also calls into the question the long-term prospects of building along known floodplains, although this should never have been called into question in the first place. The New South Wales response seems to be to cut even more red tape for developers so they can develop even more floodplains and sinking coastline in the name of growth. Neoliberalism, when cornered, will dig as low as it can go to retain its dogma, even as it destroys everything, including citizen safety, in order to avoid any compromise whatsoever. It begs the question, if we are to return to the wonder years of growing at nearly 400,000 per year, as so many in the business and political communities are salivating over, where the additional homes might go, and how 42 million people could ever afford not to be homeless anyway, we're told, after all, it is common sense to desperately grow the population as fast as possible while simultaneously trying to desperately price everyone out of the country. Wisdom for the ages sent to us by the heavens. Meanwhile, a global food security is being threatened by the Ukraine-Russia war, who provide a significant chunk of the grains and fertilisers to a world already hanging by threads and continuing to grow at 83 million per year. Nigeria's population explosion in recent decades is being met by severe power shortages and escalating tensions across Africa, while so often under the nominal reasons of civil or religious tensions are always underpinned by stress over diminishing resources, water, food and other essentials. And yet the questions persist. Why population? Why not wealth inequality? Why not consumption habits of the global north? Why not renewable green tech? This is all covered in the new discussion paper, Population and Climate Change, co-written by Professor Ian Lowe, Dr Jane O'Sullivan and Dr Peter Cook and commissioned by Sustainable Population Australia. The paper posits two very important observations. Firstly, that no one factor on its own is solely responsible for climate change, not population on its own, not consumption on its own. Furthermore, climate change is a causation when considering how many people we can support on this planet in future. Everything is interconnected and interrelated. 
Secondly, did you know that the best case scenario future projections in terms of global warming assume a stabilisation and drop off in population? So it is impossible to achieve best outcomes with an increasing population. I mean, that always seemed intuitive to me, but I didn't know it was backed by actual science and graphs, which many of the environmental scientists and policy makers don't even acknowledge. On release, the discussion paper and its accompanying media release did very well, at least by SPA standards, appearing in the Australian Associated Press, page three of the West Australian, and with co-author Professor Ian Lowe being interviewed on ABC Radio National Science Show. And now, of course, PGAP. For this interview, I'll be chatting with two of the authors of the discussion paper, Ian Lowe and Jane O'Sullivan. I wanted to uncover the stories behind the authors, including their drives and passions, their journey into creating such a comprehensive and user-friendly report, and why the focus on population. I also invite both guests to share their vision of a post-growth world beyond population. The first interview will be with the ever-impressive Professor Ian Lowe. After this, a little intermission, followed by my interview with the equally impressive Jane O'Sullivan before we say goodbye. So what can I tell you about Ian Lowe? His biography reads almost as a never-ending stream full of accolades, so it is daunting to know where to begin with Ian. Perhaps reading almost word for word from the discussion paper bio would be a good place to start. Ian is an Emeritus Professor of Science, Technology and Society at Griffith University in Brisbane and an Adjunct Professor at Flinders University and the University of the Sunshine Coast. He has published 14 books, more than 60 book chapters and over 50 journal articles. He has been involved in a wide range of advisory bodies for all levels of government over the last 40 years, including leading the Commission for the Future in 1988 and chairing the Advisory Council that produced Australia's first State of the Environment report in 1996. He earned an Officer of the Order of Australia in 2001 for services to science and technology, especially environmental science. He was also awarded the 2002 Eureka Prize for the Promotion of Science. Ian served as the president of the Australian Conservation Foundation 2004 to 2014. He is a patron of Sustainable Population Australia. With that pedigree, it is an absolute honour to welcome Ian to the PGAP guest seat. Enjoy. Now, Ian, you have an enviable legacy. What are the key passions that drive you to be a high achiever? What do you do in your off time when you're taking a reprieve from your said high achievements? I suppose once I realised that there were problems with the development trajectory of our civilization, which is when I read Ehrlich, Ehrlich and Holden, Population, Resources and Environment in 1968, I decided that we all had a responsibility to try and bend the curve, as we say, in terms of the pandemic, to redirect the trajectory of development onto a path that would be sustainable into the future. And that's really nothing less than our obligation to the future generations for whom we hold this planet in trust and the countless millions of other species that we share it with. So that's really 
what I've been doing with my professional life for the last 50 years. Uh, in terms of what I do uh, in my off time, uh, I still play cricket. These days I don't play two afternoon cricket, but I play one day games and uh, finally achieved something significant nine years ago when I was in the first Australian over 70s team to tour England. I also play golf and uh, I go on long walks um, and uh, try and enjoy what remains of our natural diversity. Going on bushwalks is a bit of a double-edged sword these days. We really need it, but you also see the degradation of everything at the same time. Now, tell us a little bit about your reflections on working on a discussion paper on population and climate change with fellow brains Dr Jane O'Sullivan and Peter Cook. I'm sure corralling 20,000 odd words on one of the more vexed and misunderstood issues of all time wasn't exactly a stroll in the park and over and all done within a few minutes. It wasn't a stroll in the park, but fortunately for 50 years I've been working on group projects. My first academic appointment was to the UK Open University and all of the learning materials there are developed by course teams. So the mode of operation is that you would write a draft, which would then be reflected on and criticised by your colleagues. And what I learned then is that, firstly, a fresh pair of eyes always spots mistakes that you haven't noticed, because we all have a tendency to see what we expect to see. Secondly, colleagues with different background, different experience, different knowledge, can always add something to what you've written. They can see additional examples, uh, they can see ways of extending the argument, they can see ways of making the argument clearer. And that's exactly what happened in this case. I wrote a first draft. Dr Jane O'Sullivan and Dr Peter Cook uh, ruthlessly criticised it, identified some obvious errors that I hadn't noticed, but also suggested additional arguments, additional information, uh, better ways of expressing it. And the end product is far better than any of the three of us could have achieved individually. Perhaps there's a, a general lesson there for human society that uh, we're all much better off if we embrace the wisdom of our colleagues and work together to achieve cooperative outcomes that are more than any of us could achieve as individuals. And the fundamental failing of the neoliberal model is that it assumes that we can all be self-actualizing individuals and uh, paddle our own canoe and work out our own salvation. And that's not even good for us as individuals and it's certainly not good for society as a whole. So that's a really fantastic lesson with a discussion paper on the magic of cooperation rather than competition, as neoliberalism loves to tell us. Now, I've observed some promising uptake in the mainstream media for this discussion paper, including a page three slot in the West Australian, which I think is a bit of a first for sustainable population Australia. How have you found the response? Um, I believe there's also been an interview in the science show that's upcoming as well. Yes, I've done an interview for the science show. Um, what has depressed me a little, I guess, is that the mainstream political journalism, business journalism, uh, hasn't embraced the important message that uh, population growth needs to be addressed if we're serious about solving the problem of climate change. Something that uh, has disappointed me continually for decades about the broader environmental movement is that... Uh, they're reluctant to address the issue of population. And as we say in this discussion paper, addressing the issue of population growth and setting out 
policies that will stabilize the human population will not by themselves solve environmental problems like climate change or loss of biodiversity, but not addressing them will ensure that we don't solve those problems. Not addressing the issue of population growth, not stabilizing the human population will ensure that we don't stabilize the climate within limits of avoiding catastrophic outcomes. It will ensure that we don't reduce the loss of biodiversity and get back in balance with natural systems. So it's really a quite fundamental issue that we need to address as a society if we're to achieve our stated goal of living sustainably. And uh, oddly, this kind of nuanced thinking is so difficult for a lot of people that need to create dichotomies and polarise, you know, that it's got to be only population, it's got to be only consumption, and if you dare say the other, then you're then you've got a conflicting view when, you know, everything's interconnected and all the same, which I think is, for me, was one of the strongest messages coming from the discussion paper. So if you, Ian, had to uh, break down the top two takeaway messages from the report, what would they be? Is there much in there that would surprise many in the broader environmental movement? I think the two big conclusions of the report, and they are ones that would be news to a lot of people in the environmental movement, is that firstly, Australia's contribution to climate change is almost totally determined by population growth. In the last 30 years, the Australian population has increased by 8.3 million, about a 50% increase, and our greenhouse gas emissions have also increased by 50%. So emissions per person have stayed more or less the same, but our contribution to worsening climate change has increased by 50% solely because our population has increased by 50%. The second conclusion, which I suspect would also be news because people haven't looked in detail at the IPCC scenarios, is that the only scenarios which show us avoiding dangerous climate change are ones in which the global population peaks in the next decade and then slowly declines. All of the scenarios in which the population continues to increase beyond the current 8 billion to 9, 10, 11 billion show worsening climate change, show that we don't achieve the target of limiting climate change to 2 degrees. So if we're to have any hope of avoiding dangerous climate change, we have to stabilise the global, the global population in the next decade. Now, in terms of Australia addressing population policy, the two main levers are immigration and foreign aid for family planning and re reproductive health, particularly abroad. So what should Australia be doing right now, which it currently isn't? I'm guessing the polar opposite of what we're doing now. Well, we've actually moved in the right direction as a result of COVID, which has dramatically reduced migration. And uh, what I set out in my book, Bigger or Better, Australia's Population Debate, is that net migration up to about 70,000 a year is consistent with a long-term goal of stabilising the population because women are now substantially in control of their fertility and are having fewer children. As the population ages, the current natural increase of about 150,000 a year will gradually reduce and the population will stabilise sometime towards the end of the 2030s if we have anything between zero net migration and a net migration of about 70,000 a year. Uh, 
the problem, of course, is that the the government and uh, most economists are saying that when the pandemic is essentially over or we've learned to live with it, we should go back to having uh, net migration more like 200,000 a year than less than 100,000 a year. And that will ensure that the problem gets steadily worse. In terms of foreign aid, we've steadily reduced our foreign aid and under pressure from a few religious bigots, uh, the government uh, withdrew from its foreign aid package uh, measures that were assisting with family planning in poorer countries. And really, the kindest thing we could do to the poorest countries in the world is assist them with family planning so that women are able to have control of their fertility, able to exercise the choice if they wanted to have smaller families. And that will in turn make it easier for them to cope with the problems of climate change, reduced water, reduced food, uh, all of those problems are now being exacerbated by rapidly increasing population. So really, we should step up foreign aid to something like the UN target of 0.7% GDP. And specifically, we should include in our foreign aid package, as we did decades ago, assistance with family planning in the poorest parts of the world. I recall last time we spoke, Ian, you mentioned being intimate with the idea of limits of growth since the Club of Rome days in the early 70s. In reflecting on the projects made then, and indeed I think it's a 50th year anniversary since Limits to Growth book uh, first debuted um, in 1972, has everything the book mentioned been going as predicted? And do you feel a bit of a Cassandra sometimes? Well, it's important to point out that Limits of Growth didn't make predictions it made a range of projections of what would happen under different circumstances. And its broad conclusion was systematically ignored by decision makers. And I've reflected that perhaps the title Limits to Growth might have been designed to offend those who are ideologically opposed to the idea that there might be limits to growth. And as a result, did not look seriously at what it said. What it said was that if the Trends of growth in population, resource use, industrial production, agricultural output and pollution were all to continue. We would reach limits within 100 years, i.e. by about 2070. But the most likely result would be a decline in social, economic and environmental conditions starting sometime about now. Dr. Graham Turner of CSIRO has compared that standard world model with the data for 1980, 1990, 2000, 2010, 2020. And what that analysis shows is that we are right on track for that gloomy outcome in which human population, uh, resources, environmental conditions, social and economic conditions all start to decline sometime about now. So if we were seeking to achieve the collapse of civilization, uh, we have all the right policies in place. Basically, we are right on track for the standard world model. It remains true, as it was 50 years ago when the Club of Rome published their first book, their first report, The Limits to Growth, that there are fundamental limits to how much we can demand of natural systems and all of the significant environmental indicators uh, water per head, food per head, marine resources per head, forests, biodiversity are all in decline. 
and uh, it's clear to anyone who can read joined up writing and do takeaway sums that we can't continue on the current trajectory. I despair of those who think that the problems of growth can be solved by more growth, that if only the gross domestic product could be made sufficiently gross, we'd be able to afford to clean up the environment. And the fundamental point is that no amount of wealth will bring back an extinct species or repair a degraded ecosystem on any human timescale. The depressing conclusion is that if we don't appreciate there are limits to growth, those limits will be enforced on us by the fundamental limits of natural systems. And uh, the result will be suffering on a previously unprecedented scale. So in that sense, I feel a bit like Cassandra, who was uh, doomed to have her warnings ignored. Like most scientists working in the environmental area, I have effectively been warning decision makers for 20, 30, 40 years that uh, growth can't go on forever and that we need to bend the curve and get back in balance with natural systems. And um, the depressing conclusion is that uh, politicians will only respond when they are forced to by circumstances beyond their control. Uh, speaking of Cassandra, I do remember um, the one time that ABC let me on their 24-hour news, uh, I think it was three years ago on Earth Overshoot Day, and um, I was basically telling everyone how limits to growth are going to lead to terrible outcomes, and the two news presenters looked at me with disdain and they said, um, but some of us are recycling. <laughs> And I did quite know what to say to that. But um, then six months later, you know, the same people were saying that all the recycling in Victoria, like China, doesn't want it anymore. And it's almost, it, it's been interesting to observe, like three years later, things have degraded so much that it's almost that, you know, you just can't deny it anymore. So, Ian, beyond population, what is your vision of a post-growth world and what might my day-to-day -day life look differently in this vision, um, aside for, from slightly fewer people, perhaps? The fundamental point about a sustainable future is we will have stabilised both the human population and our per capita demands on natural resources. A recent issue of New Scientist pointed out that we currently produce each year something like 100 billion tonnes of stuff, and that's a level of production that is simply unsustainable. It works out at about four kilograms per person. The fundamental point is that we need to reduce our per capita consumption to get balance with natural systems. I reviewed a UN report on resource efficiency and economic outlook for the Asia-Pacific region, and it basically concluded that satisfying the legitimate material expectations of people in the Asia-Pacific region for clean water, adequate shelter, decent nutrition, healthcare, education, will require a new industrial revolution in which we produce our material needs using about a quarter of the resources per capita that we now do. And that's not a huge stretch target the Howard government received a report in 2003, a National Framework for Energy Efficiency, based on the technology that existed then, nearly 20 years ago, and it 
calculated that we could reduce our emissions in Australia 30% using cost-effective existing technology that paid for itself in less than four years. That was 20 years ago. With 20 years of progress, I don't think it's unreasonable to say that we could live at the same level of material comfort today using half the resources we now do, using cost-effective existing technology, simply being less wasteful. So the positive, optimistic, sustainable future I envisage is one in which we still live comfortably, but with a level of per capita resource use that's about what it was when I was an undergraduate student uh, 50 or 60 years ago. Uh, We weren't living in caves. Uh, We weren't freezing to death in the dark. We were living quite comfortably. We were just living less wastefully than we now do. And it's conceivable for the entire population to live at the level of material comfort that we lived at in Australia 50 years ago within the limits of natural systems. What is not conceivable is for the entire human population to live at the level of material consumption that Australians or Europeans or North Americans now do. So fundamentally, we have to live more simply so that others can simply live. As we've been recording this interview, there seems to be um, the overconsumption in practice happening right outside my road, causing sound in this interview. And it's incredible to see um, the neighbours fixing up one driveway and the amount of earth movers and giant vehicles and people and leaving vehicles on ignition for hours on end that's required so in <laughs> um, do, do you see a future a, a lot quieter future with a uh, lot less earth movers being employed uh, absolutely and in all areas there are obvious efficiency gains when I mean, there's a, an obvious concrete example Because we have no vehicle efficiency standards, the average fuel efficiency of the Australian vehicle fleet is about half that of the European vehicle fleet. In other words, on average, cars in Europe require half as much fuel per kilometre travelled as cars in Australia. Obviously, we would reduce uh, fuel use for transport far more if we made more use of public transport, more use of active transport, walking and cycling. There are quite civilised cities in Western Europe where half of all urban journeys are made on foot or on bicycle. But uh, we have steadily made our cities less friendly to pedestrians and cyclists. And generally, we regard the bicycle as a transport technology for young people until they can graduate to something more dangerous. A city in which we are more likely to walk to the shops, our kids are more likely to walk to school and so on, Uh, is not just living lower on the food chain. It's also a city in which we're more likely to interact with our neighbours. It's more likely to be socially sustainable than one in which we drive past our neighbours with the windows rolled up. And apart from the odd angry mouth gesture through rolled up windows, there's no interaction with anyone else as we go from where we live to where we work, where we live to where we shop, where we live to where we're educated and so on. The sustainable society of the future is much more likely to be one in which we interact with our neighbours and uh, have a proper uh, human relationship with our neighbours rather than existing in our hermetically sealed bubble. Well, we're coming to the end 
Ian Lowe. It was amazing to have you on board. Uh, you're an inspiration last time we met in uh, Adelaide and you continue to not disappoint. <laughs> to wrap up, um, the degrowth movement has been building momentum these days and one is sport for choice for campaigns to back, books to read and organisations to support. So that being said, why do you think it is important for anyone to read the Population and Climate Change discussion paper and more broadly to support the work of Sustainable Population Australia? Well, a lot of the discussion about degrowth ignores population. Uh, but the, the book Managing Without Growth made the obvious point that unless we stabilise the population, it'll be politically impossible to stabilise the overall size of the economy. Because if the size of the economy is stabilised and the population keeps growing, then wealth per person, material comfort per person is declining. And that is politically unsustainable. So the goal of getting off the growth treadmill, the goal of stabilising our consumption within the limits of natural systems can only even in principle be achieved if we first stabilise the human population. That is an absolute prerequisite to a sustainable future. And that's why I think this paper is an important contribution to the debate, because so far the discussion about climate change and the discussion about reducing resource use, degrowth, living within the limits of natural systems has given little attention to the fundamental issue of how many of us there are. Ian, thank you so much. The discussion paper was brilliant and it's been uh, even better to meet the authors of said discussion paper. Um, thank you so much for your time. Real pleasure, Michael. I've enjoyed talking to you. Welcome back to the Post Growth Australia podcast. I'm your host, Michael Bayliss, and we just spoke with Professor Ian Lowe to discuss the latest discussion paper. Good speaker, isn't he? <laughs> Before I introduce our next guest, firstly, a community service announcement on behalf of the New Economy Network Australia, or NINA. They were very kind in sharing the population and climate change discussion paper in their newsletter several weeks ago, and their director, Dr Michelle Maloney, was one of the first guests on PGAP. Both Jane and I have also presented at NINA-run conferences. NINA is collaborating with Griffith University's Unicentre to deliver a short course of Building the Wellbeing Economy, Foundations for Learning and Practice. The course brings together 21 leaders over at eight weeks to discuss how we might reshape the economy in which both people and the planet thrive. This is critical for any post-growth person to consider. To register, visit Nina on their website. Further information in the episode description. Well, I've got your attention and please consider supporting Post-Growth Australia podcasts. Subscribe to us on any of the major podcast platforms. Rate and review PGAP on Apple Podcasts. Contact us to let us know about your feedback. Most importantly, share this episode and others of PGAP among your friends, family and networks. After all, the word of mouth is the only tool we have to cut through these important conversations into the mainstream where they belong. My next guest is Dr Jane O'Sullivan. 
She is renowned among environmentalists and population sustainability advocates alike as a one-person think tank with an almost singular ability to articulate the truth from the rabble. Jane is a cross-disciplinary researcher spanning a nexus between agriculture and demography, embracing food security, ecological sustainability and economic development. She has participated in numerous collaborations with international colleagues in ecological economics, environmental philosophy, climate change responses, and family planning promotion and implementation. She's published academic articles involving family planning, aging population, and the impact of population growth on infrastructure. In addition to this discussion paper, she was the author of the previous discussion paper, Silver Tsunami or Silver Lining, Why We Should Not Fear an Aging Population. I've been meaning to have Jane on this podcast for ages. With the current discussion paper, Population and Climate Change, what a great excuse. you today Jane? I'm very well thanks Michael. Jane tell us a little bit about yourself including your passions and what drives you. I am passionate about trying to make the world not as bad as it seems to be wanting to head. I'm very concerned about our environmental predicament and particularly the impact of too many people doing too much with natural resources and generating too many wastes and I'd like to um, see a world where we have societies that take that seriously. Well, sounds like you're the perfect co-author for the discussion paper then. Now, you are a cross-disciplinary academic researcher in both the fields of agriculture and demography. I guess I need to ask how did you arrive to this eclectic combination and are you the first person ever in human history to do so? Well, I'm sure I'm not the first person. I always had an interest in the kind of human ecology and where it was was leading um, and a sense that the track that we were on couldn't go on. So, you know, a curiosity about how humans were going to be able to keep feeding themselves and um, not damaging the environment. So that kind of led me to agricultural science and I worked a bit in biotechnology and then in um, crop nutrition working on the sorts of crops that people in the tropical regions grow for their own subsistence and helping um, communities particularly in the Pacific Islands to improve their their crop yields and um, deal with their soil fertility issues in ways that were affordable and appropriate for them. Um, But I got frustrated with the discipline of agricultural science that um, instead of acknowledging population growth as something that also needs to be addressed in order to achieve food security, it is mostly denying that, that this is an issue and pretending to be able to deliver food security, which obviously it can't. And so a a very famous earlier um, agricultural scientist who made that observation was Norman Borlaug, who is considered the father of the Green Revolution for developing the early um, 
high yielding wheat and maize crops that, that um, really rescued India from famine in the 1960s. So he was very adamant that there can be no permanent progress in the battle against hunger until the agencies that fight for increased food production and those that fight for population control unite in a common effort. So he um, was given a Nobel Prize in 1970 for eradicating hunger and he was adamant that he had not eradicated hunger and that the Green Revolution would only buy us about 30 years in which to deal with the monster of, of population growth. And so we, we have done a bit in that regard, and it's brought us about 50 years, but it's really coming to a head about now, and we are not doing enough in that department. So I guess I'm not alone in, in that history of crossing over from agriculture to concern about population. And uh, certainly with empty shelves in the supermarkets, I know that's a supply issue as well. It's a, it's a perfect time to get us thinking about these kind of things. So why your focus on population and not some of the other, you know, nicer things like uh, wealth inequality or technology, Jane? Um, certainly that decision wasn't born from a conscious decision to make lots of friends. No, I think probably one of my biggest handicaps career-wise is that it's not about me. <laughs> I've never been in it for my own <laughs> um, my own benefit. So, and this is certainly not the career to uh, to make lots of money and and uh, achieve lots of influence. It seems. Did you research into agriculture and? and or demography and you'll inform your focus towards overpopulation or was it the other way around or a bit of both and why population? Why population? I think um, Paul Ehrlich said it very nicely when he said what, whatever your cause it's a lost cause if we don't deal with population growth and for me I got interested because I started receiving this sort of comeback messages about um, well development's the best contraception and you know that the population's on track to peak anyway and all of these things and I started looking into them and finding that the evidence wasn't there to back these statements and that the evidence was stacking up very very convincingly to say that there was much more that we should be doing about population growth and that it would make a huge difference to um, environmental security and uh, economic development in underdeveloped countries. So it just seemed like the place to put my efforts that would potentially have the biggest impact on those outcomes. You've put your pen where you preach, Jane, and you've been either a lead author or a co-author on two discussion papers commissioned by Sustainable Population Australia. The first, released in 2020, was titled Silver Tsunami or Silver Lining, Why We Should Not Fear an Aging Population. The second, released early this year, uh, is titled Population and Climate Change. Now, Jane, my first question is, uh, coming from someone myself who wants to jump off a cliff every time I've written a 2,000-word article or the latest Spark COVID statement, you've uh, got a greater attention to detail than I do, but still, don't you have nightmares involving track changes and red text? <laughs> um, 
I find it quite hard to to get into a new writing project but once I'm in it it sort of creates a life of its own and it leads you know leads me through its own uh, detail and demand for for further um, research and finessing and Peter Cook the editor of this series of discussion papers has been an amazing person to work with and he's incredibly thorough in um, <laughs> checking out all of our facts and figures and and the um, the acceptability of the language that we're using and um, so there have been a lot of rounds of editing and sometimes I you know I'm sort of trying to get on with the next project and get this monkey off my back. It's all to the good in the end. Benefit of retrospect, eh? Yeah. <laughs> and so what was it also like to be working alongside Professor Ian Lowe, uh, a patron of SPA and uh, a great mind unto himself? Ian's just such a wonderfully generous person in um, providing his efforts and insights into our project and he's such an articulate person um, writing in such a, um, an accessible and personal way about the issues that concern him and his own experiences. So it's really been wonderful working with him and he's been very accommodating of the extra material that, that we put into the um, discussion paper on top of the, the draft that he initially provided, which really gave us a, a terrific framework for this discussion. So all the way through, Ian's been very um, supportive and helpful. You couldn't ask for a better co-author. Excellent. I mean, with this combined brain power, no wonder this uh, discussion paper, the Population and Climate Change paper, has read as impressively as it has, uh, from my opinion. Now. From your perspective, how has the response been to the discussion papers so far? Um, my observation has been that the ageing paper was a bit of a slow burner, but that eventually led to some great things like your interview with Joshua Spodek's The Sustainable Life podcast uh, and SPA's ongoing working relationship with the Your Life Choices Journal. Uh, this latest paper has even got the attention of the mainstream print media, including a page three slot in the West Australian, which, uh, from my memory, is a bit of a first for SPA. Yeah, it's been very gratifying to see the amount of media attention to the climate paper, and I hope that that's getting a lot of people to um, click through and read the document. It's interesting that, you know, the sort of pushback you often get on the population issue is, well, you shouldn't be telling people how many children to have. And the thing that the media's picked up most in the headlines um, reporting our paper is sort of telling people how many children to have. <laughs> you know, it's <laughs> the, the whole line that having fewer children is the, the biggest um, impact that an individual can make through their lifestyle choices to uh, reduce their environmental impact. That's kind of interesting and kind of frustrating and that the media always sort of latches on to, to one contentious thing, but I guess because it's contentious, it's, it, it's got the uh, column inches that it has done in the media, which is a good thing. Yes, what, what do they say? There's no such thing as bad publicity. Now, if you had to share your t two major takeaways from the climate change paper, 
for the broader environmental movement to consider, what would they be? Or to put it another way, what are the two major assumptions on overpopulation from the environmental movement that would be debunked from reading this paper? Well, the first one, I think, is that there's nothing we can ethically do about population growth and it's stopping anyway. So it's really not stopping as fast as many people think it is. And what we can do, what's um, possible just by putting in more effort to provide the, the services that people need and to change cultural norms, would have a massive difference by the end of this century. Several billion fewer people than we would have on current trends. So that's a, a massive difference not only for how the climate change story unfolds, but for how global development unfolds and how the biodiversity crisis unfolds. It, it just would be an enormous difference to most of the critical problems that humanity faces right now. The second takeaway is that it's not about blaming the poor. It's about a duty of care to help remove the barriers to development and security for people in poor countries. That so often in the environment movement, people say, oh, their population growth doesn't matter. And the assumption is that they want large families and that they have valid reasons for, for wanting many children and it's none of our business. Whereas the reality is that it is extremely harmful to them that their societies are growing so fast. You know, it, it's a huge economic barrier um, and it's creating food insecurity and water insecurity and, you know, massive slums that, that have no sewage and uh, um, terrible places in terms of public health. Um, and none of that is surmountable if the number of people being added every year is just overwhelming the, the country's capacity to improve services for people. So it's really, it, we should care about population growth not because of climate change, but because of compassion and humanity. But if we're not compassionate enough and if we are self-centered, then do it because of climate change, because we cannot um, keep warming under two degrees if the number of humans on the planet is going to get to 11 billion and they're going to have to find land to grow food. Because that will have such a big imp impact on forests that we won't be able to draw down the carbon emissions. Yes, yeah, some very sobering thoughts there. Now, this question I know you're very um, passionate about. Uh, you've always been a very strong advocate for family planning as one solution to overpopulation, particularly in the global south. Now, it is often claimed that raising the economic status of people in the global south leads directly toward better family planning outcomes, but isn't the reality that it's the other way around, that established family planning programs cause raised economic prospects in many cases? Uh, can you elaborate on this causation a little more? Because it's uh, something that people get confused about so often. Yeah, and the evidence is very strong on this, but it's amazingly hard to get the message across because people in the development industry particularly 
ardently want to believe that they're right to ignore population growth and that others like us are wrong to bang on about it. But anyone can see that it's hard to build better health and education systems if the number of patients and the number of students is doubling every 20 years. You know, it's hard to get people out of slum housing when they're flocking to these overcrowded cities from the countryside where they have too many siblings to inherit land, so there's no means of subsistence for them. And it's impossible to generate enough employment for all the young people entering the labour market. But as soon as you slow the growth down, the same budgets for health and education and infrastructure just go further and start to make improvements instead of just scrambling to prevent going backwards. So I like to say it's like running up a down escalator. If the escalator's going too fast, you just go backwards despite your best efforts. But as it slows down, the same amount of effort lifts you up faster. And that's exactly what you see when you look at the data on developing countries. It's clear that those who've made good progress economically in the last 20 years, they got their birth rates down first. And those who still have high birth rates haven't made much progress economically at all. So it's not that development is the best contraceptive because you simply can't sustain the development in a high fertility context where the population is growing fast. It's much more the case that contraception is the best development stimulus. Every single country that's got their fertility down to near the replacement rate of 2.1, um, their economy's taken off every time. So I think it's a really important message that we somehow have to get across that population growth is a massive impediment to development. And it's not about age structure. It's not about, you know, a youth bulge and the demographic dividend. It's about the rate of growth just overwhelming the capacity to provide for people and improve their prospects. And it is incredible the degree of misunderstanding out there, isn't it? It's almost um, staggering. It's almost as if uh, <laughs> there are people wanting to skew the facts. Uh, you, you might think that, Michael. <laughs> I wonder who they would be. <laughs> it almost sounds a bit like a conspiracy theory, although I think this one might actually be true. Now, on PGAP, we always ask guests, with their own unique and personal vision of a post-growth world. Um, so what might a day in my life in the future look in Jane's vision of a better world? Would it be just less populated or would there be other things that are different? Well, it, it would ideally have a declining population, which means that each generation is... Um, getting more access to natural resources rather than less. Um, but in my ideal world, neoliberalism would be a thing of the past and governments would take a much bigger role in moderating the excesses of big money and in ensuring everybody has a decent level of services. So I think... Um, you know, we have been in a, um, a world in which 
our leaders believe in trickle-down, that if you just let the rich get as rich as they possibly can, that enough will trickle down to the, the ordinary people at the bottom to give them a better life. And this has been disproven so many times, but we can't escape from this pattern because we've allowed the rich to get so rich that they really run the government. <laughs> you know, and, and somehow we've got to claw our democracy back to say, no, this is not what the majority of us want. Um, we want government to, to intervene a bit more and ensure that those things that everyone says they want, if, of universal um, health care and good education and decent housing and, and security, um, are actually delivered by a proactive government rather than a standoffish neoliberal attitude in government. Um, there are many other things that are important to a sustainable world. Um, dealing with climate change rapidly is a huge one and it's one that really demands um, you know, a sort of war footing which means that we accept that for a period of time all of us are going to have to make some sacrifices. <laughs> and um, I don't think we're at that point. We're kind of in this technofix attitude where we just think that someone's going to come along and swap over our dirty technologies for clean technologies and we'll just continue doing what we want to do. But, you know, we need much bigger public conversations about um, how the reality is going to play out and what it means for for each of us in terms of what we should be prioritising in our lives. So you wouldn't bet money on one of Dr Allen's uh, innovations <laughs> that she often mentions on the ABC without clarifying what those innovations might actually be? Well, you know, it, it's very easy to sort of be flippant about the risks of an ageing population and the the way that population growth will boost the economy and things. And it's all very short-term, you know, if you actually have a coherent mental model of the world and try and run it on those settings, it just doesn't work. <laughs> you know, we have to accept that the population can't grow forever and if we want people to have long and healthy lives, there's going to be quite a few old people around but that's not a problem because most of them are healthy and participating in society and we need to get out of this mindset where paid work is the, the be-all and end-all of why we're here on this planet. You know, it, it's not and GDP is not the measure of our success. Um, yeah. Which he articulated <laughs> so well on the ageing discussion paper. So um, last question, Jane. Um, Sustainable Population Australia, who commissioned both discussion papers, are also kind supporters of PGAP. Now, with all the other post-growth stuff out there to read and to participate in, why do you think people should read the discussion paper on climate change and furthermore consider supporting SPA? I think the discussion paper is... Uh, quite a rare resource that covers issues that people don't otherwise encounter in the media. And they're really crucial issues. We are certainly not saying that dealing with population growth is the most important 
part of the climate change response. But what we're saying is that if we don't deal with population growth, we will fail to contain climate change to below two degrees. And that's what the, um, the mitigation models are telling us, that they can't find settings that, re that contain the warming to less than two degrees if the population continues to rise to 11 billion and because of the food requirements of that population. Um, and I think it also explains the way that population growth increases the vulnerability of people in high fertility countries to the impacts of climate change. It's putting far more people into housing that's on floodplains or unstable slopes, places they wouldn't have chosen to build on before because they know of the risks, but because they have no choice um, now that there are so many people in those cities. So that means that every time there is a storm surge or a mudslide or a whatever, it impacts so many more people. And the size of these cities is creating heat, urban heat island effects where they can be several degrees hotter inside the city than out in the countryside um, just because there's no vegetation to transpire and, and have that um, evaporative cooling effect that you get from trees. So all of these things mean that population growth is just intensifying the impact of climate change, particularly through the humid tropics. Um, but you know, for everyone in the world is going to be impacted by this. The less population growth we have, for instance, the amount of infrastructure that we have to build in Australia each year just to keep up with population growth is contributing about 7% of our emissions. Just the emissions generated in building all that heavy infrastructure. You know, so <laughs> just by not having such a high demand for new construction, we can reduce our emissions without any change in our lifestyles. 7% isn't going to do the whole job for us, but it's something that, you know, we can, it's an achievable con contribution that we shouldn't be turning our back on. It's going to be much easier to transition to 100% renewables if we stabilise our population below 30 million than if we double it to 60 million by the end of this century, which we're on track to do. So they're, they're choices that we can make um, in this country very easily. It's really just up to the federal government to, to set the policies, but we need to understand what the, the full implications are of choosing to have high immigration and choosing to try and boost the birth rate in order to maybe not have quite the same proportion of pensioners to working age people, but it, it, that's a false argument when there are so many other much more impactful um, implications of that. And one of them is that it's much harder for us to draw down our carbon emissions when our population is growing that fast. So I guess with um, population, one of the 
well, the majority driver of increase of emissions and the fact that uh, SPA is probably the only national uh, environmental organisation um, willing to address this square on, but it seems like um, jo joining or supporting SPA will place you on the right side of history. <laughs> well, it'll certainly do that. The, the thing is that the growth lobby has enormous amounts of money behind it. And, you know, the number of opinion articles you read in the mainstream media every day are lobbying for higher immigration, lobbying, you know, for being scared of too much demographic ageing um, and, and putting down anyone who says that we need to stabilise our population for environmental reasons. There's a lot of money behind that. There's very little money <laughs> in the other camp and SPA is really valiantly taking on the role of countering those myths and, you know, deliberate misrepresentations that the growth lobby is presenting to us. So it's incredibly important to have an organisation like SPA um, which is accessing, you know, really smart people to um, provide the counter-arguments to these, these um, myths that, that the media is telling us. And I think it's a money extremely well spent to support SPA to do more of, of this work. Well, thank you so much for your time, Jane. Unfortunately, we're going to have to wrap this to a close, but this was Dr. Jane O'Sullivan, co-author of Population and Climate Change. And Jane, I hope you have a short break before your next discussion paper, whatever that might be. Thank you, Michael. It's been a pleasure. You are listening to Postgrowth Australia podcast. I'm your host, Michael Bayliss, and we just spoke with Dr. Jane O'Sullivan and before her, Professor Ian Lowe. Well, if you haven't yet read the discussion paper, I hope this double billing was a good enough incentive for you. Do yourself a favour. The discussion paper can be downloaded as a PDF from the Sustainable Population Australia website. Many thanks to SPA for also being primary supporters of PGAP and for allowing a medium to widen the conversation beyond population and to have real meaningful discussions with many PGAP guests who have sometimes entirely different views on population to myself or Jane or Ian. <laughs> for such a vexing issue, it is so easy to fall into an us versus them camp, but I always find that most of us have a nuanced, complicated relationship with this issue, and I am proud that PGAP has been an avenue to explore this with a degree of maturity so often lacking elsewhere. So that's about it for today, but I look forward to next time. Until then, folks, until then. <laughs>